0: Today's episode is brought to you by O-Yoga. Offering over 50 classes a week between their two studios in downtown Syracuse and DeWitt, New York. There are opportunities throughout every day to find your center and allow your mind to turn inward and examine the abilities of your body. O-Yoga offers all levels of classes from beginner workshops to hot and sweaty vinyasa flow classes. Come find the right class for you by signing up for the two-week New Student Unlimited membership for $25 and take as many classes as your heart desires. Our world is a truly amazing place. It is full of wonder, beauty, and amazing people, most of which we will never see. I am Tyler, and along with my wife Tiffany, we are OM Travelers. Our goal is to see the world, create amazing experiences in our life, and meet as many inspirational people out chasing their dreams as we can. This show is my opportunity to bring their stories to you so we can all share in the lives, inspiration, and awesomeness that we seldom hear about in those around us. Please join us here and at Ohm Travelers on Instagram and be a part of our journey. Namaste. Owning your own clothing store has always seemed to me to be one of the coolest things you could do. Following fashion trends from year to year and color changes from season to season has always been something that's interested me. I've always been somebody who also has taken a great pride in what I wear on a daily basis and making sure I have a clean, good looking appearance. That's just my personality, though. It's always seemed very risky to me to even begin to think about opening up your own clothing store. I'm a baby in that sense. My thoughts always end at where to begin. I think all of my bright ideas come. But then they quickly fade, and I don't ever come to any ideas or solutions on how to make them happen. For Cliff Carey, where to begin leads to a stream of ideas and avenues on how to make things happen. Cliff isn't from Syracuse, but he believes in what our community stands for, like he was a lifelong soul from here. After finding success in the hearing industry, he walked away and started American Reserve Clothing initially as an online retailer and most recently as a stakeholder in the Armory Square section of downtown Syracuse. If you haven't been into his store, you need to stop by and at the very least say hello. He has stories to tell you and for sure you will walk away inspired. If you can't make it downtown, visit him at www.americanreserveshop.com. Enjoy Cliff's story today. I know I had a great time sitting down and hearing what he had to say. Carey, and I've met him a couple times, uh, a couple, about a year or so ago, and never, just uh, hello and in passing, and my wife, Tiffany, brought his name up um, a few weeks ago and kind of told me what he was doing, and I, I had absolutely no idea, and, and shame on me for not paying more attention to it, but um, I'm excited to, to hear and explain, have him explain where we are and, and what he's done and uh, hear his story and what led him down this path. So Cliff, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. And uh, I, I think the first thing I want to say is, is thank you. Uh, I think you're doing a great job with this uh, this podcast. I'm excited to be a part of it. So. Uh, kudos and uh, just excited to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. So as per usual, give us a little rundown of of where we are so that the people that are listening can kind of picture in in their mind where we're sitting down today. Sure.
1: So it's super exciting for me where we're at right now. Um, I've had a a pretty uh, monumental shift in my career focus, really life focus, uh, over the past year. And right now we're sitting in my shop, American Reserve Clothing Company, uh, in armory square right in the heart of downtown uh, syracuse and uh it's a boutique uh, high-end men's casual fashion shop uh, we've been open for just under three months and uh you know we're picking up a lot of steam so it's uh it's the the feel i was going for was somewhere between a clubhouse and your grandfather's study you know like i wanted you to walk in and, and especially for guys because yep. i don't know that a lot of retail is uh, specifically engineered that experience is not engineered specifically for guys. And I want it to be a spot where, you know, fellas could come in, you know, good music playing, you know, we taste uh, whiskey and wine on the weekends, you know, and just have a really nice uh, look, feel, even smell to the place. Uh, so it's uh, become uh, my second home. I think I spend more time here than I do uh, at home uh, other than when I'm sleeping. Uh, I haven't started sleeping here yet, but maybe, <laughs> maybe eventually. Um, but uh, I couldn't be more excited to be, uh, to be doing the interview here.
0: Well, it's a really cool location. I mean, there's Wu-Tang, you know, Rage Against the Machine posters on the wall and surf posters. And, you know, I took a quick walk around the store and and the clothing that you have is, I mean, reasonably priced, first of all. But, I mean, it's really awesome, like, comfortable, durable, like, quality stuff with, um, and I'm sure you'll get into this more, but with you know, quality people behind it. Yeah, so, absolutely. so well, I guess, I mean, since we're sitting in the store, how did you end up here?
1: Wow. It's a, it's a, it's a, a tough question for me to answer um, because it's a long story. And uh, for me, I wasn't that guy that grew up wanting to get into fashion or apparel. You know, I wasn't the eight-year-old kid sketching out, you know, different outfits and just couldn't wait to be a designer, dreamed of going to FIT. I mean... Those things were never on my radar. Um, And it's interesting when I meet people in the field now and I hear that, you know, kind of origin story, uh, you know, fairly frequently, you know, and they'll ask me about certain products or certain looks or styles, and I'm just lost. You know, for me, I kind of backed into it. Uh, I think a long time ago I recognized that there is a power to clothing, right? Uh, When you are wearing something that makes you feel good, Um, whether you think you look good or it just hugs you in a way that makes you feel good, um, there's something that that changes in you. You're you're less concerned about how people are perceiving you, and you're more present in the moment. And it's really uh, a transformative uh, process. Um, Power suits, right? I talk about this a lot. They give people confidence. You step into a a well-tailored suit, not only do you feel great, So that mental transformation takes place, but a lot of times there's a physical transformation where your posture changes. And that's all because of the clothing that you uh, are wearing. Um, And and for me, I I recognized that a long time ago, and it started with simple cliche things like, hey, dress to impress, dress for the job that you want. And I was very ambitious from a very young age. uh, So I was always looking at ways to beat the competition or at least to to outperform um, in the sort of margins You know, I think performance on paper was going to be what it was going to be, but where could I win? Um, You know, where could I put in more work than other people were putting in? And and one way was to really look the part, Um, you know, and a certain idea of being recognizable or standing out from the crowd. um, So having a little bit of flair to what I was wearing was also something I was looking for too. Um, So that drew me to, I guess, more of a focus on, you know, well, what. You know, could I add to what the normal corporate outfit looks like uh, to to add a little bit of flair? And I um, ended up, uh, you know, shopping in a bunch of men's shops whenever I would travel. And I I had the great opportunity and privilege of traveling this entire country uh, in in a couple different corporate roles. Uh, And every time I'd go to a city, I'd try to get to know it. And I'd go to the local coffee shop. I'd go to the local music shop. Um, and I'd go to the men's stores. And um, I think through that, I started to recognize that there's, there's great clothing out there with great stories behind it. There's, there's great uh, people making, making fantastic, you know, either traditionally uh, made clothing or, or things that just have a, a much different heritage than sort of the fast fashion you find online or in the malls. Uh, and the more that I kept pulling that thread... I guess, the more engrossed I got with it. And, um, you know, so finally when um, I decided that I wanted to shift out of the corporate world, shift out of the medical, uh, the medical industry, um, you know, I figured I could do something really radical, you know, in terms of transforming my career after I retire, right, and just kind of slog out the next 30 years of just, you know, marching to somebody else's drum. Um, or I could just do that radical shift now. So uh, it ended up being um, a pretty easy decision once I put it into that context. And uh, I was lucky enough to have the, the financial capabilities, um, you know, the wherewithal from a business standpoint, uh, and the vision. Everything kind of came together, and the leap, you know, became a lot less scary at that point. Uh, so here we are. Uh, it, it's it's been uh, amazing so far. Um, the friends that I'm making in the industry, uh, the people that I'm meeting in this community—that uh, you know—I thought I, I thought I knew a lot of folks in this town, uh, but it turns out, you know, you open up a shop and mm. open your doors, and, and people walk in that you never knew uh, uh, or never knew of, and uh, a lot more connections than, uh, than than I thought. So it's um, it's been fantastic. Where did you grow up? So, that's also, uh, I guess, a long story. Um, <laughs> my folks uh, moved us around pretty, pretty frequently. Uh, I grew up on the east end of Long Island. I was born in a, a city called Patchogue, which is Suffolk County, um, kind of, uh, you know, central island, um, and Long Island is a lot different now than it was when I grew up there. Uh, you know, it was a lot more blue collar out on the east end. Um, you know, there were a lot more farms, um, horse farms, I mean, now it's all... McMansions and vineyards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, very different. Uh, but uh, at at one point, um, my parents decided to move us off of Long Island. We moved to the Adirondack Park. So I went from this, you know, uh, kind of, you know, one lifestyle of having an absolutely flat horizon line of the ocean and learning to swim on the ocean, swim on Jones Beach moved into the Adirondack Park where your horizon line is jagged with these, you know, gigantic, you know, snow-capped mountains in the wintertime. And it was for uh, a kid of my age and my sort of imagination and creativity, like moving into a, um, I guess, a dreamscape a little bit. I walk out the door and I could have adventures for hours on end and, uh, you know, not to sound too much like either a a generationalist or an old guy but you know my mom would kick me out the door you know mm-hmm. at some point in the morning and I wasn't due back or expected back uh, until dinnertime
0: where know? in the Adirondacks did you live
1: a town called Long Lake
0: which, oh sure yeah.
1: yeah I mean if you look I, at the Adirondack, oh, go ahead. I
0: canoed it Oh, great. And when I was in summer camp one year, from so, one end to the other and through the little river at the end. It's beautiful.
1: Man, that's impressive. It's 11 miles long. Yeah, it's So, long. I mean, that is, and there's a swift current. I mean, it's really a widening of the Racket River. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it is, uh, that, that's an undertaking. That's impressive. Um, but I like to tell people, uh, if you look at a map of New York State and you see the Adirondack Park, it's kind of egg-shaped. And... Long Lake is like the bull'seye mm-hmm. in the center of that you know uh, that oblong and uh, I tell people it's quite literally the middle of nowhere
0: <laughs> yeah it's beautiful though yeah
1: beautiful uh, but super remote all the trappings of like rural mm-hmm. uh, you know country America where everyone knows everyone you know most of the people who grew up there related somehow
0: wood carvings and... you got yeah.
1: it so uh, you know needless to say uh, when it was time for me to leave, And when I could leave, I was out of there like a a bullet shot from a gun. Do your
0: parents still live there?
1: Uh, So my mom is uh, still up in the Adirondacks. Uh, My dad passed a few years ago, uh, but he had moved out of the Adirondacks uh, uh, several years before that. Um, I ended up, after college, moving to Albany.
0: Where did you go to college?
1: So I went to uh, State University of New York at Potsdam. Okay. And I, I was blessed in a lot of ways with having an aptitude for... Almost anything that I applied myself to, and I think for a lot of people, and certainly for me, when that happens, you tend not to apply yourself,
0: <laughs> right? Sure.
1: Because you can get enough done just by showing some mild interest and, and, you know, putting some things together and, you know, some cleverness along with some charisma can get you pretty pretty far. Uh, so I had, you know, taken, uh, you know, math into, uh, into, you know, high college courses, uh, sciences, you know, creative writing, I mean, you name it, uh, I was going to go to acting school, I mean, th- there was everything, you were, you were on the gamut, and, and I, at one point, uh, had shown some interest in it, um, and I really had no clear direction on where I wanted to go because of that, and uh, I think my solution for that was I was going to invest my time in creative writing, uh, write a blockbuster screenplay or a novel, you know, be on New York Times bestseller list. And, uh, and that would be the way that I would get into, you know, celebrity or stardom. And I'd have to have a day job while, you know, that took time to pick up. So I might as well become a teacher. So I went to Potsdam to be an English teacher. And that's the wrong reason to become a teacher. And I found out very, very quickly that, um, you know, as idealistic as I was... Um, believing that every class was going to be like a scene out of Dead Poet Society with kids hanging on like every word coming out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just not the practical day-to-day of teaching. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork, lesson plans. You spend a lot of time just staying on schedule, uh, being aware of schedule, making sure the kids are where they're supposed to be, uh, and then trying to hold their attention. And then wherever the margin is left after that, is your moment to create this, you know, uh, inspiration or spark sure. or whatever yeah. side of the kid. And, and for me, um, it, it just wasn't gonna be a good fit. And I had had bad teachers that were going through the motion. Um, they were great people, but they just, you know. You knew the effect. Yeah, and sure. and, and, and that wasn't for me. Um, so right around the time I decided to, to forego that as a career path, um, my father had fallen ill and uh, I ended up moving um, to be close to him in the Albany area, I stayed there for about eight years, and through a couple really interesting twists and you know, great fortune, uh, got into business management and systems management, um, became somewhat of an efficiency expert uh, and uh, in leadership dimensions and uh, leadership development. So I was running teams anywhere from you know very small teams of three to four people working on a project to teams over a hundred uh, trying to accomplish uh you know some some pretty sizable tasks and uh, you know my my analytical brain uh grasped those opportunities to take a broken process and and fix it okay um, my teaching background and my acting background and the, you know no stranger to being on stage, uh, led me to that leadership and training aspect of, of what it means to be in business management. Um, and then I just ended up working for a, a great company that um, you know, that was focused on you know, their own brand management, on developing the people who were there. Uh, and uh, from that, I was able to transition into a business consulting role. Uh, and I worked with uh, small uh, franchise owners in the nutrition field. Uh, helping them to sell more product, focus on shrink, hire and maintain their staff, uh, become more profitable, um, and then recruited from there into the medical field. So it, it was a, a bunch of twists and turns in my career for sure, but I think every step along the way, I kind of absorbed uh, or attained these, uh, these skills that allow me to kind of be... Um, Effective in the world, and you uh, I couldn't be more more happy or proud of it.
0: Where, what were you doing um, before you started in retail?
1: So, I worked uh, for a company called EarQ. I was recruited uh, to that company, and what that company specializes in is uh, helping small to large medical facilities focus in hearing care uh, on becoming more profitable, attaining and retaining uh, their patients, um, and and really just focusing on best practices. I think the, the ethos of the company really is that uh, people become audiologists because they want to care for the patient. They want to affect some change within that patient's life uh, and lifestyle. And all the business aspect of what needs to take place um, is a secondary focus. Um, and some of it is... Tedious. Uh, some of it is confusing. Uh, I mean, I could, you know, go on and on about you know building and coding in the medical field, and you know just how uh, interesting uh, and convoluted it is. Uh, but a lot of those ancillary needs of those businesses detract from the ability to focus on the patient. So what we would do is offer A to Z business solutions, uh, marketing solutions. That would allow that professional to focus on the patient, um, and uh, you know I, I absolutely loved the field. Uh, I've got to tell you that uh, I think hearing loss itself is misunderstood, um, misrepresented quite frequently. Uh, it's it's so uh, tied to our own mortality and the way that we view aging and death that most of us uh, try not to learn about it. I mean, it, almost on a subconscious level, we dismiss any uh, idea of um, trying to understand what hearing loss is. And, um, you know, the fact is 80% of Americans who have hearing loss don't do anything to address it, uh, that the longer your hearing loss goes on unaddressed, you actually risk some pretty severe um, damage to your brain. Hmm. Uh, I mean, the way our brains learn are through something called plasticity. So the... Yep. The, the more stimulus and the more varied that stimuli are, uh, the stronger and healthier your brain is. Now, if you were to uh, expose your brain to a stimulus for most of your life and then deny your brain of that stimulus, it's going to naturally go, well, I don't need this, you know aspect of of, uh, what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Based on some research that was done in the Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging, uh, we now understand that there are certain gyri in the brain uh, specifically associated with uh, speech recognition that will start to shrink if you've got a hearing loss, Uh, as as low as a a 25 dB hearing loss, which is like a, a little above a whisper. Wow. So that's you know something that may be slightly recognizable, and that maybe ten years ago an audiologist would have said you're not quite ready to do anything yet, and would have sent that patient back out into the world. And you know now we know, over time, that could lead to a a degree of uh, impact on your cognitive abilities. uh, Your balance is impacted. So uh, it was very easy for me to grow. Kind of a crusader mentality you know one thing I'm an avid communicator myself so anything that is a barrier to people communicating well um, you know I want to root it out uh, not to mention I felt like we had this secret that most people um, not only didn't know about but they wouldn't believe it they wouldn't want to listen to you if you were telling them about it so the desire to get it out there um, into the public conversation was uh, was really important. And, uh, you know, the, the longer that I worked in the field and the longer that I worked with uh, the gentlemen who eventually became my partners, um, you know, I started to uncover or try to uncover different ways to get the, the word out. Uh, and I think I kind of... I think we took it on ourselves to become the PR firm for hearing loss in general. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we were advancing our own... For-profit business, our own, uh, you know, brand of, of hearing devices. Uh, there was a greater good that we were looking to do, and um, I became very impassioned by it. Uh, was invited to become a partner in the firm, uh, and, uh, and and life was good. Life was good for a while. Um,
0: now, Iroquia is a, lo- like, a local company. They're not a national, like... I mean, I know you might cover nationally, but it's based in Syracuse?
1: So headquartered in Syracuse, and there are two, uh, call them sister companies. Um, It started as a local hearing
0: aid dispensing business. Yeah, okay, and that's all I really knew it as. Yep,
1: and then that kind of expanded into uh, multiple locations, and then eventually the the creator of the business recognized that not only did he need more business uh, resources, But when he would go out and meet other people in the field, whether it was national trade shows or state shows, um, that there were other people in need of these things. And that's where, you know, the market need was, the solution was to create, you know, these these best practices and principles that could be shared among like-minded business owners. Once that picked up steam, the development for a national sales team uh, wow. and, and consultants, uh, you know, grew out of that, and that's when I was recruited in, when really looking to take it to a national expansion. So, um, and then eventually the local dispensing clinics were spun off. Okay. So I've, you know, never sat down one-on-one with a patient. I've never fit a hearing aid myself. Um, what we were doing was strictly business consulting. We'd walk in, and um, you know, we could look over P&Ls, mm-hmm. or you know, schedule C taxes, and 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 through a short Q&A, be able to understand where the biggest needs for the practice were. Um, you know, my my approach was always that 80% of what those clients needed to do every day, they loved doing it. It's why they were in the business. It's why they got up. It's what fulfilled them. 20% of what was needed from them as a business owner was a big pain in the ass and they didn't want to do it. And yeah. very frequently it didn't get done. When it did get done, it didn't get done well. Okay. I would uh, say that our best consultants were able to identify what that 20% was and it was different for every single client and then offer solutions. And um, you know, not only did it make us an integral part of their business, um, but it also allowed us to... Um, to really fuel the growth as we continued, uh, continued on. And um, when I left the firm uh, in mid-2017, uh, we had close to 700 clients nationwide. Wow. Um, and it was really interesting, too, that you know, everything that I did from a career standpoint was looking away from Syracuse because our sister companies were here and we couldn't work with any... Competitive offices. Um, now, of course, we did support them with a lot of the services, and you know, we did test a lot of our marketing and a lot of our uh, uh, solutions here. But at the end of the day, they were one practice of you know seven hundred that we were focused on. And uh, when I left, I was the the VP of Marketing Communications and. Um, I was very much involved in a lot of kind of local first movements, entrepreneur business networking uh, uh, organizations here in the city. And when people would ask, you know, what is it that you do? They'd come to understand that I was working for a company that, you know, wasn't really focused on our growth here in Syracuse. We had this market locked up through mm-hmm. our sister company. We were looking to grow in states and markets where, uh, where we weren't yet uh, strong uh, enough Um, And that always seemed to dig at me a little bit because, you know, I'm a huge supporter of local economies. I'm a huge supporter of independent businesses. Um, I have been for a long time uh, supporting dozens of friends who started ventures here. uh, And I just felt like I had no skin in the game. You know, I was telling people what they should be doing in terms of buying local, buying fair
0: trade. But you felt like you weren't walking the walk.
1: That, that was it. That was it. You know, and, you know, from the outside, you know, people would say, well, hey, you've got a great career. You're very successful yeah. in what
0: you're doing. And, and in a lot of ways, you were helping the community because you were helping other people. Yeah. So from the outside.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I was paying my taxes here and obviously, I'll, you know, most of my salary was going back in the local community sure. here. So, so there was a lot of good I was doing. Um, but I always felt like there was something more I could be doing. And that's probably a little bit of a hang-up in my own, um, <laughs> you know, personality traits, that there's always a little bit more that I could be doing.
0: Uh, no, but there's also, I mean, a lot of people who have a good job, I'm presuming you were making good income. And in Syracuse, with a moderate income, you live a good life. Yeah. You were seeing parts of the country. You were traveling. You had a job and a career that you from what it sounds like, really enjoyed and really bought into. So most people at that point would say, okay, I'm going to help out at a not-for-profit. I'm going to go and help feed the homeless. I'm going to do a can drive for a school computer system. Right. You said, I need to do something completely (laughs) different. Yeah. And I'm going to leave a job that I really enjoy but maybe isn't a passion. And I'm going to... Enter the fashion industry. Yeah. So w- were there other ideas? Because in, in interviews that I've read of yours that are on, one on your website and then um, a recent one on the... Um, with CNY... Uh, Channel 3 here locally, CNY Central. Um, you talked about how you had this nagging thought in your mind for a long time. Yeah. of You just had this pull to do something else. It, it manifested as clothing... But before you committed yourself to that, were there other things or was it only this one thing?
1: No, no. Uh, So, I think that most people with an entrepreneurial mindset are plagued by uh, these sparks of inspiration that could be an idea for a brand, for a product, for a company. And and this has happened to me for my entire life. And um, The way that I would normally approach it is, well, there's an idea. I'd recognize that I've had an idea, right? And then I would say to myself, all right, forget about it because I'm focused on what I'm focused on now. I'm really dialed in on, you know, career X or project Y, whatever it might be. And I wouldn't want to become too distracted. And, you know, my, my monkey brain operates just like everyone else's monkey brain that, you know, if I allow myself to be distracted, I will be. And what I would, you know, how I would approach it is if within two weeks I'd forgotten about it, well, it wasn't that great of an idea.
0: So you weren't writing them down? No. Okay.
1: No. And uh, there were a couple that I I really, you know, it took me the better part of six months or more to let go of. Um, You know, I'm a musician, and, and I love live music, and, you know, at one point I wanted, you know, a rock club. And, okay. you know, this thing was, you know, uh, it, it hung out with me for about six months, you know, and you know, at the end of the day, I think it, I was just like, well, I, I don't want to own a bar, you know, but how, how do you, how do you do the live music without the the bar piece? Yep. They just seem to go together, unless you've got you know some type of you know theater or, uh, hall or something. And, and I think at that point, it, it, it really went off the rails for me. But even in my 20s, I was thinking about, um, and they're everywhere now, um, so I'm happy I didn't get into the field, but I wanted to open uh, a string of coffee shops. I want to call them Mean Mugs. No, why, that's good. why, why you Mean Mug in <laughs> yeah, right? right. You no, know, and I even had this idea yeah. for, the, uh, for the logo and stuff. It wow. so was gonna be cool, you know. I was, in, uh, I was in Albany at the time, and I looked at uh, the Pearl Street uh, corridor, which, you know, isn't dissimilar to, to where we're sitting right now in Armory Square um and uh yeah, and a thousand other ones that you know I would be embarrassed to tell you about, you know, uh but this one I think grabbed me at the right time um, there was a lot of transition happening uh you know in the medical industry itself uh, you know, I, I just like i had never you know had the dream to be in fashion, I had never once had the dream to be in the medical field interesting and In fact, the opposite is true. There were times in my life where I said, well, that's one field that I can just immediately cross Hmm. off the list. You know, there's just... There's too much politics to it. There's, you know, all this government oversight, all of the uh, for-profit insurance companies, you know, all of these, you know, mega forces that are twerking and tweaking the industry at any given moment. um, And I just didn't want any part of it. Uh, But I was... uh, I was happy for the time that I spent in medical, but uh, there were uh, a number of things that were taking place that were just leading me to question, you know, if it was something I wanted to continue on with. So, so this idea came along, and uh, at the same time, I started learning about the way Americans approach fashion and how much it's changed, and and you can actually see the impact that a couple different. Uh, you know, major shifts in the US economy uh, have made on the fashion industry. You know, one is this, you know, advent of the internet as a consumer platform. uh, And then the downturn in uh, the US economy in 08. Uh, Both of these things, um, one can argue, led to, you know, the huge growth of the wholesale uh, marketplace um, where people were buying more for less becoming club members at Sam's and BJ's and, you know, now you're buying uh, your clothing at the same place you buy your you know, filet mignon. It's it's very interesting. Um, And suddenly there's this idea that clothes should be cheap. And that's not at all the case. I mean, you go back, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, maybe a little bit further, um, you know, the only people that bought clothes were the mega rich. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Everyone else, made they made them. their own yeah. clothes, right? Yeah. Um, so you could say it's the advancement of our, you know, culture and society that now we're at a point where clothes are super cheap. But that's that's super nearsighted, and it's not true. The reason that clothes are so cheap is because we are paying people in developing countries uh, these paltry wages. They're working in unbelievably poor conditions mm-hmm. to make sure that you can buy that, you know, bonus pack of six. You know Fruit of the Loom T-shirts, and I don't want to you know disparage Fruit of the Loom, just using it as an example. Um, you know from Walmart. You know, and guess what? Back to school season. Now that six pack comes with two extra, you yeah. know, shoved in the pack. The reason you get those, you know, for thirteen ninety nine or whatever the the cost is, is because they're being made in these you know uh, horrible uh, conditions, uh, and there's such a, a ravenous uh, appetite for a throwaway fashion. You know, I'm gonna buy the t-shirt today, I'm gonna to wear it for six months, and then I'm just gonna throw it out. Yeah. You know, and the statistics are staggering. You know, 97% of clothes that are sold in the U.S. are created outside of the borders here. And it's not to say that every import is a bad uh, yep. uh, import, but much of the clothing that's imported in the U.S. is made in developing countries like Bangladesh, China, Cambodia, where these people make $3 or less a day um, and uh, the conditions are, are are staggering. Three of the four worst catastrophes in the fashion industry history have happened in this decade, mm. and they've happened in those uh, those those countries. Bangladesh, uh, I think, in 2012 or 2013, a factory collapsed; 1,200 people died. Wow. Uh, the workers have been cl- uh, complaining about yeah, visible cracks in the walls. That. Yeah. And uh, it was a blip. It was a, you know, 48-hour news cycle, and then it was gone, and people went back to buying really, really cheap clothing. And, and, and it's so interesting, when you hear the, the narrative that's out there, it's, you know, buy American, American manufacturing, you know, it's, it's, it's the fault of all these countries that are flooding our, our uh, stores with these, you know, with these products. But at the same time, there's not really an appetite for people to go out and spend more on American-made goods. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting, interesting dialogue. But you see things changing, right? Uh, you look at the fair trade movement in coffee. When I mean, you go back even 25, 30 years ago, coffee was really cheap. You know, A cup of coffee was 50 cents, maybe 75 cents. Uh, but it was being made by people in developing South American, mm-hmm. usually, uh, uh, or Central American countries. And they were being paid. Nothing. Yep. They are working horrible conditions, and this whole idea of fair trade coffee came. Now it is nothing to walk in and buy a $5 cup of coffee yeah. or a $7 latte yeah. or whatever it might be. Uh, there's also this idea that buying from your local coffee shop is a really good thing to do. So that right there is the model for what we're hoping to accomplish here. It's just taking it from that product category of coffee and moving it over into clothing and, and having people take that same approach and say, all right, I'm going to buy from, you know, independently owned, doesn't have to be American made. Not everything in my shop is American made, but the importers that we work with, uh, they stay really close to the product. It's all responsibly sourced. Uh, and, and and I talk with the, the presidents and CEOs of these companies. They're the people that I have the relationship with. It's not where I'm talking to some salesperson yeah. who you know, talks to a sales manager who then talks to some type of VP who works with the CEO. I'm talking directly with the people. And, you know, what that allows me to do is to get to know them. And if, you know, I, I feel that our values don't line up, I don't care their products. But when I feel that our values do line up, man, I buy in. Yeah. So when people come in and they go, oh, this is a cool shirt. You know, instead of me just going, yeah, what size are you? I go, yeah, you want to know something really cool about that shirt? Here's where it's made. Here's what the guy used to do. Here's what he's doing now. You know, here's the idea behind the design. Here's actually where the fabrics were sourced from. uh, And
0: now it's in your hand. Well, people want to know the story. I mean, that's why, like, I'm sitting here with you. That's why people listen to the podcast. Like, they want to hear the stories behind not only what they're supporting or what they do or don't know about but what they're wearing I think one thing that you mentioned um, before was the our our cultural draw to um, cheap and ability to throw away yeah. and I think you know you saw the movement come up with outlet stores which seemed to really come into rise in the 90s yeah. and initially it was just like the ones that they kind of messed up on and then it was they made a whole separate line just for the outlet store But you follow a a model like Patagonia, for instance, where, you know, if something rips on their clothing, they want you to send it back to them so they can fix it and not so you can throw it out and buy another one. Yeah. You know, and I think that our shift to that is huge for the overall impact of the world because the the, the t-shirts that we buy and throw out don't break down right they sit in landfills or they blow places or they get eaten by animals and all you know and it's just until just recently that we're all we've all known that but i think more and more people are acknowledging that yeah. where composting is becoming a bigger thing and getting locally sourced fruits vegetables and meats is becoming little by little you continue to hear people inquiring about those types of things so it's really Absolutely. um it's cool to walk into a place with, like I said, like very quality clothing. That you buy it, you're not going to spend an arm and a leg, but you can tell you're going to have it for yeah. years. Absolutely, and
1: uh, yeah, I, I think that as much as it's defamed in kind of the public conversation, uh, the global marketplace has allowed us all to become much more aware of what the you know uh, the product chain is like from, you know, yep. origination to, to that purchase. And, you know, these are byproducts of, uh, corporate growth, yep. you know, and that's, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. And, and I'm not, you know, anti-capitalist or anything like that. But when you have companies that are just always looking at how can we grow, if yep. that's the number one indicator, well, they're going to take an outlet store model chasing the
0: bottom line. Yeah,
1: they're yeah. going to say, "Wow, we just moved a bunch of these irregular sizes, a bunch of these, yep. you know, misprints, and people loved it. You know, let's take some of the stuff out of our retail shops where we can't move it, put it over yeah. there, uh, and see if we can't move it too. And, and and you know, people love deals. You know, people will." Uh, sift through clearance racks for hours looking for something that that seems to be a great deal and and that's not a bad thing um, but there is a shift you, you're absolutely right back to um, something that's much more authentic and uh, and that's that's a lot of fun to be part of that but at the same time like Patagonia is a great company at one point they were talking about stopping man yeah. Manufacturing, because yeah. they said enough of our clothes is already out there, and it's it, ending up in landfills. Yeah, so we'd rather just have you yeah. know people buy you know uh, lightly used or you know lightly loved, yeah. whatever it might be, clothing. Um, you know, a, another great example uh, is Red Wing, and Red Wing is one of our brands, and I call it an anchor brand here. Probably one of the brands that when people walk in, they've heard of it. Almost all of the other ones that I carry here, I, I do a lot of educating and introducing uh, of the brands. But Red Wings, family-owned, started in 1905. Uh, a gentleman named Bob Sweezy started the company. His grandkids are running the company now. Uh, this is an American uh, you know, success story through and through. Um, they bought a tannery uh, just a couple minutes uh, down the road from the factory. It's American leather, American mm. factory with American workers. It's an American-made product. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. But what was really neat, that I uncovered in talking with some of the folks there, which, which every single person I've met from that organization is Class Act, which, you know, speaks volumes about the corporate culture as well. They said, you know what? Years ago, everybody jumped on this Black Friday thing. And naturally, in a boardroom, at one point, someone said, hey, we really got to get on board with Black Friday. So we did. So we developed all of these marketing messages, all these campaigns, all uh, of these uh, opportunities to activate people for Black Friday. Well, a few years go by and they start to really question if this, you know, Black Friday melee that takes place you know, on the Friday after Thanksgiving every year really lines up with their corporate ethos. They said, we've got these independent boutiques like the one I've just opened here that are out there. Selling our product, mm-hmm. we've got our own retail stores, which are our Red Wing retail stores, um, that have exclusive rights to sell the Red Wing work boot, which is a, a fantastic work boot. Um, and now we're going to go out and make this huge push. And aren't we cannibalizing their business? Now, how is yep. that good business for us? Yep. Uh, and that was an amazing question to even ask. So they asked, but then they acted on it, and it was unbelievable. Finally, they said, you know what? Black Friday is not really our thing, but this small business Saturday yeah, that yeah. started to pop up, and I think, it was, I think it was really organic where it came from, and then whether it was co-opted or at least just organized. Well, the by credit AMX. card companies got behind. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it became this thing out yep. in the public marketplace, and they said, well, I think that's where we should, should push our... our uh, our, our energy and, you know, half of the boardroom was up in arms saying, you know, this is the biggest weekend of our entire year and we're about to, to screw with it. Sure. You know, why would we do that? Well, it's just really who we are and what we should do. So they end up changing all of their messaging away from Black Friday into Small Business Saturday, driving people who are interested in Red Wing into the independent shops, into the uh, their own retail uh, uh, centers, and, um, and, and made a, a sea change in what they were doing. And by the end of the weekend of the first year, and I believe this was two years ago, they were up 19% year over year mm. by making that change. Yeah. Now, part of it is that it just makes a lot more sense. They probably were selling things at a little bit of a higher margin. Um, but there's also this sea change taking yeah. place in the public consciousness. Um, and I spoke with uh, a few of the folks that I know over there, I think halfway through Saturday of that uh, that holiday weekend and they were already up something like 23%. Year-to-year. Well
0: you hear and I guess that leads me into kind of one towards the end here but you in the headlines recently it's you know three stores closing at Destiny USA and uh, you know what stores closed in the mall last year and so you know like there's four leaving and one coming in and a lot of people are happy to start and I, and I don't want to see anything happen to the malls obviously but it's nice to be able to come down to a place like Armory Square and have a bite to eat, walk around the stores, stop in, and that's something that Syracuse and I think a lot of cities mm-hmm. that are not the major metropolis cities around the country have been lacking for a very long time. Yeah. I mean Syracuse's history was based on its downtown focus, and I think this is the success of any city area, you need a strong central focus, whether it be the town square or a downtown or whatever it might be. But with that being said, a lot of people would say to you, with the internet going on, which is the reason why a lot of the big retailers are scaling back, are you nuts to... And I don't think you yeah. are, but like, yeah. what what's your what's your sure. thought process? Because you have a website too, and that's where this store started, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a successful website, but then you say, "No, let's do this. Yeah. Let's take this next risk." What was the thought process? What was there a thought process, or was it just like, "There's no question in my mind. This needs to be done."
1: Oh, there's definitely a thought process behind it, and and one yes, I'm probably crazy, but but maybe not, you know, in this particular regard. Um, so yeah the urban sprawl you know that's been taking place for the last thirty years in this uh country, which is what big box really grew out of to service people living in the suburbs um, there's a retracting of that uh of that movement happening uh, urban centers are growing people are becoming more accustomed and it's lo- looking more favorably to people to live in city centers and and, and that's something that um Will continue to grow, and I, I can remember a decade ago futurists, you know, saying, "Hey, cities are going to grow, population is going to continue to grow in the U.S., and most of it's going to be in cities." Hmm. Um, so that's happening, and and malls are an antiquated model. I mean, they really are. This whole idea of doing, um, you know, kind of traditional uh, media buys and then waiting for people to walk through your front door—it's mm-hmm. just not it's not the way people consume brands, media or products anymore. We, we seek out brands that we can self-identify with through the computers that are in our pockets. And if you're not out there trying to cultivate an audience, if you're not out there showing people why your brand is something they should either aspire to or something that's very similar to who they already are or self-identify with, um, then you're just not, you're not doing the retail game the way that it's being done today. And the brands that do it really well uh, you know, earn the biggest, you know, margins. You look at Apple, people self-identify as I'm an Apple guy, I'm, a, I'm an Apple mm-hmm. girl. Um, and they'll buy everything Apple, right? And you look at what Apple does in terms of a brand, I mean, it is, it, they try to be as appealing to everyone as possible, you know? Uh, and, uh, and that model is what brands need to be doing. So, for example, Macy's, closed, I don't know, whatever it is, 1,200, 1,500 stores, yeah. uh, maybe more over the last uh, two years. Uh, that's because they failed to recognize this change that was taking place, uh, where you have to have an online presence. You have to have an authentic uh, connection to your consumers and you have to tell them who you are. Um, so in the wake of that, uh, company Saks Fifth Avenue, which if you look at you know, the kind of anchor stores in you know, downtown Manhattan shopping, yeah. Macy's flagship, Saks Fifth Ave, Bloomingdale's, right? Um, They've got very similar origin stories, uh, but Macy's went on this huge retail expansion. Saks saw this happen uh, over the last year and a half, two years, and said, we don't want this to happen to us. We're not nearly as exposed as Macy's is to this, but we have to make a change. And they started hiring people that were in content creation, uh, e-commerce, brand management, Uh, and they said, what can we do to tell a different type of story? And I think what you're going to see is a hybrid approach where yes, malls are going to be with us. There'll probably be less of them. They'll probably become more specialized. Uh, there's a lot of mixed use going up where it's retail plus cuisine plus experiential, uh, you know, whether it's a roller coaster in the mall of America or it's live music playing, you know, outdoors in, uh, you know, some uh, some shopping district uh, in anywhere USA, is going to become much more of an event. You know, you go there on a date and you shop a little bit, you eat dinner, you watch a movie or you watch some music or whatever it might be. You take the family there if it's kid-friendly. So it's going to be much different. So the malls are still going to be with us. And I love the mall here in town. Um, I don't go there often um, just because I can find things similar to what's at the mall, either here in town or I shop online. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to fool myself into thinking that there's a row of 15 bulldozers waiting somewhere to knock that yep. mall down. Uh, not to mention that the parking lot is filled with 1,200 cars every <laughs> single weekend. Yeah. So we have to swim in the same stream. We have to find mm-hmm. some way to uh, capitalize on each other's strong points. You know, there's a strong draw to the mall here for our region. There's a strong draw, growing draw, to the authenticity and identity of Syracuse as a city. How do we meld those two things together where we can both benefit from it? You know, that, that, that's the, the piece, I think, generally. Specifically to the business here, I've been working in, you know, online patient acquisition in trying to convince people to buy something that they didn't want in terms of hearing care and hearing mm-hmm. aids, um, I knew that I was up against uh, you know, a lot of forces that were going to keep people buying online. And the last thing I wanted to say was, you know, I'm gonna open this boutique shop and it's gonna be the coolest thing and, and I'm gonna be the one guy that figures it out. No, what I'm gonna do is take a hybrid approach where first we're going to be online we're going to be great at it. We're going to build a community. We're going to build social content that people love. Uh, we're going to have an experience for our customer when a, a package arrives from American Reserve. Uh, it's going to look great. It's going to smell unbelievable. It's going to have all the clothes that I wanted. They're going to fit great. Uh, and it's going to be this experience. You know, When people come home from their job and there's an Amazon package sitting on their front stoop, they're excited. There's a dopamine rush. I wanted to take that and, like, 10x it. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, in order to build this great community online, you have to build content, you have to tell your story, you have to be authentic. Well, having a shop is a great place to shoot video. uh, It's a great place to shoot photos. It's a great place to tell your story, uh, to have people come in where you can shoot them in clothing and then get it up online. Uh, But it's also, again, that element of where's my skin in the game? You know, how do I help this city, this community, uh, further its development um, and and really reclaim, you know, some degree of economic uh, solvency that that we had at some point? Well, the best way to do that is to to go all in. So, uh, you know, we don't have the largest footprint down here, um, but we're here and we're trying to draw people down as much as we can. So, um, yeah. If push came to shove and I had to choose between one of the two channels, I'd close the shop and I'd focus on on web um, because I'm going to reach so many more people. To be honest, there will be days where we have, you know, um, minimal activity in the shop, but I'm shipping clothes to Europe. Mm. Uh, I ship clothes to the West Coast. And I think part of it is the style, the look that we've cultivated here. It's already alive and really thriving in Scandinavia, in, um, uh, you know, places like Japan. Uh, I mean, really, really strong, thriving salvage denim, sort of Americana heritage brand. Um, you know, people buy Levi's for, you know, $1,200 in Japan these days. It's unbelievable. <laughs> um, and then on the West Coast. So, mm-hmm. you know, I ship six, seven parcels to uh, either the Bay Area, San Francisco or LA or, or, or San Diego a week. Um, and those things keep the economic activity of the business moving while we continue to educate folks in Syracuse. We continue to tell them why it's important. Um, but it's, uh, it's very interesting and, and it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I get to tell really exciting stories to people who are hearing things sometimes for the first time. And, I mean, that's a magic moment for me. And that goes back to me teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, here I am, you know, showing people why it's important to think about what they're buying in terms of clothing. Um, And it's fun. And and I'm learning. Again, I didn't grow up in the fashion industry. I'm learning, you know, probably more on a net-net basis than I'm teaching on a daily uh, basis when it comes to the fashion industry. Uh, And it's exciting for me. Um, And it's just, it's neat to be involved um, in a business where, you know, it all kind of depends on what I'm doing. You know, uh, I've got to maximize every minute. I've got to maximize every opportunity. Um, there's a lot of responsibility. I want to be a great boss. I want to be a great partner within this community. I want to be a great neighbor, a great tenant. I want to I want to do all of those things really, really well. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, that is exciting. Uh, because you've only got so much focus at any one point. So, um, you know, try to focus on the things right in front of you. Do it the best you can. Move on to the
0: next one. Well, the store is is awesome. And I I strongly encourage everybody listening to just stop in and take a quick walk around. Introduce yourself to Cliff. Um, it's next to Eureka Crafts and kind of in between Eureka Crafts and, and the bank on the corner of Franklin and Walton. Yep. And, um Come in and see it. And then what's the web address?
1: It's uh, AmericanReserveShop.com.
0: Okay. And is there any social media or anything like
1: Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, most people, when uh, they're aware of our shop and our brand, it's the social piece that they, that they really are drawn to. Uh, but we're on Instagram at American Reserve. We're on Facebook at uh, American Reserve Shop. Um, and uh, you can you can find us there. I hope you follow along and okay. uh, you know be a part of the community.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll make sure we post this on the website. Yeah. But um, Cliff, thank you. It's—I mean—it's crazy to think that you went from hearing aids to fashion. I mean, yeah. without any degree in it, and it's—it's uh, it's, again just another great example of people taking the leap and not only doing things that make their soul happy, but also this—you know—make the community a stronger place to be. And—and and, you know, that's at the top of the list. So absolutely. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks, man. Today's episode was produced by me, Tyler Cagwin. The background music was provided by Soul Rising. Find him on iTunes, Spotify, or basically anywhere you listen to music. www.soulrising.com and at soulrising on Instagram. Make sure to visit our website, www.omtravelers.com and look in the podcast section for today's show notes and links to the places and things discussed in the episode www.omtravelers.com Namaste